This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Form of the day. What I, I notice often is, uh, is morning service because it's complicated and we don't usually do this long version in daily practice here. So um, I think it's good. I think the assemblies got the um, sitting down part. And um, again, I, I can't see, so I don't know about this, but it's bowing during that bell. And I forgot to mention yesterday, this is one, a good one where you can put down the sutra book and try to like on your cushion next to you or behind you. And so you can go do this. It's called um, Dashoasana. Oh. <laughs> if you can get your elbows on the floor. And uh, today's form is um, standing up at the end of morning service. Since we got the sitting down part. Standing up is um, we start the all Buddha's 10 directions three times. We start passing back the sutra books, but you can actually stay sit- seated until the roll down on the little bell starts and then uh, stand up together to move in one body, harmonizing with the great assembly, being one with our activity. Oh yeah. So if you're if you're sitting in Seiza kneeling, um, all Buddhas, 10 directions, three times, you can rise into choki, which is you're still on your knees, but you lift your bottom up. It's a kind of transition because if you're sitting in seiza on your knees for morning service, your legs might fall asleep. So it's kind of, it's an easier transition rather than jumping up from the seiza. You know, choki, seizas, you're kneeling right on your, on your feet, or you can put a cushion in between your legs and choki is when you think that your knees are still on the floor. If you're sitting cross-legged, I think it would just be, you could just at the first roll down, you could just start uncrossing your legs. In some ways it might sound like being one with the activity of the moment might sound different than being the host of all experience as the space of ever-present awareness. In some ways, to me, if I consider those two practices, they almost sound opposite. One's kind of forgetting all about awareness and just like being the immersion in the activity. And one's kind of forgetting the activity and just uh, opening into the vastness letting the particulars kind of recede to the periphery, focusing on the space in which they're happening. The other is letting the space kind of recede to the periphery and focusing on the particulars wholeheartedly of moving and bowing and chanting. So I think it's true, they're kind of like opposites, but they're both serve the function of um, dissolving the duality. One is is kind of like dissolving any sense of subjectivity 
into the object at hand. That's one way we might talk about the being one with the activity. Just like feeling the sutra book in our hand completely. There is no mind. There's only the universe of the sutra book and the voice. And the others kind of like letting the, the kind of objectivity of sights and sounds kind of um, merge into the space in which they're happening. Letting the objectivity kind of unite with the subjectivity. I think awareness is not exactly subjectivity, but it's kind of in that direction because it's not the objects that we're usually attending to. See how those are almost like the opposite direction, but they're both about dissolving the sense of the subject-object split. One's immersion in the object and one's kind of immersion in the awareness. Letting the object drop into awareness, the other's letting awareness drop into the object. Both are good. And it's nice to, I think, the more active practices like chanting and oryoki and uh, work practice are kind of like the uh, one with the activity opportunities. And then in zazen, Okay, forget all about the activity and just be the space. Some people uh, I've heard describe shikantaza just sitting as like be being one with the posture, just feeling the entire body so fully that there's no other thought or relationship to the body. There's just being the body. That would also, I think, be like this uh, one with the activity. But one could also describe shikantaza is drop off the body, forget all about it, and let it let it drop into uh, a big space where we can't find any body other than the knowing of it. Continuing with the transmission of light, the stories of our lineage ancestors taking up these stories and considering them is also a, a means of revering Buddhas and ancestors. Because revering Buddhas and ancestors, we are one Buddha and one ancestor. The devotional quality, particularly to, I think, this Denkoroku text. These are our ancestors. These are our spiritual ancestors. If any one of them were missing, it would be a completely different situation. We might not be here today. Or if one of them were missing, then uh, maybe there would have been somebody else. But in that case, Everything would be just the same, except the flowers on the altar would be blue instead of pink. Could be like that. It wouldn't be exactly the same situation now. And it might not be at all, because the lineage is always hanging by a thread. Here we, at Inconceivable Joy Temple, in general daily practice during the um, temple cleaning time, soji, 
after morning service, the priests go up to the founder's altar and recite the names of all these ancestors together. And uh, up to the, from, from the seven Buddhas before Buddha, up to the founder of the temple. And then I like to, um, after that, then go back to my abode and, and do three prostrations to my root teacher, because he's not on the, on the list here. It's close. I, in fact, I, I recite all the kind of connecting names uh, that were left off here so to get the whole lineage. Some might call me fanatic to do such a thing. It said in the in the uh, the commentary on the Dharma transmission ceremony. There's a little piece in there from the 1600s or something. It says um, after this ceremony, one should recite these names and do these three prostrations to one's root teacher's name, recited three times. Uh, every day for the rest of one's life. So uh, I haven't always done that myself, but uh, I have for a while now. And not out of obligation. Uh, it's always a good one to check. The thing says it, so I guess I have to do it. It's more, more like I like to. There's a feeling in that. And, uh, and then there's also the danger of the Zen thing becoming like personality cult. Am I bowing to this person who's hundreds of miles away, who doesn't even know that I'm bowing to? Or is it not exactly the person that I'm bowing to, but um, he's like the placeholder in the lineage. He's the, um, he's the one who passed it to me. Yes, he's a person and, and people have bodies that can bow to people's bodies. But what's truly precious is the, is the light, the Dharma light that uh, must be transmitted person to person, face to face. The old commentary that says to do this every day says, this is to um, repay the debt of gratitude for receiving the teacher's Dharma milk, most like a mother kind of image. And uh, Soto Zen, it's, you say it's the root teacher is the one who um, passes the lineage on to oneself. And uh, I also practice in this Tibetan Dzogchen tradition, which also uses the term root teacher. And uh, they're the, because they don't have so many elaborate ceremonies about this kind of transmission ordeal, they, um, they define the root teacher as the um, the one who who first directly points out to you the nature of mind in a way in which you get it for the first time kind of experientially you have some taste and uh, that's no small matter on the other hand it's very ordinary but then there's people in, in that Tibetan tradition sometimes say they have many root teachers because uh, one can keep receiving the light in, in different ways. 
different facets of the light from different teachers, even hundreds of root teachers and thousands more um, branch teachers are possible. So I do three prostrations to my root uh, chain teacher, Silkini Rinpoche, every day as well. Dogen Zendi says, when, when, um, when there's no more prostrations in the world, there's no more Buddha Dharma. That's, that, that's the end. That's like the end of the age of decline, and there's no more prostrations. Regarding this issue of having the, the nature of mind pointed out by a, a living being, nature of mind, by the way, is the same as nature of reality. And uh, probably from the beginning that we first heard about Dharma, we probably heard stuff about that. So in a way, maybe we, we um, got that a long time ago, even from books. But at some point it really hits home and, and uh, we feel like, oh yeah, now it all makes sense. <laughs> so Dogen in his, in his uh, universal instructions for Zazen, the Fukan Zazengi, he begins his Zazen instruction with, with pointing out the nature of reality. It starts by saying, the way is originally perfect and all-pervading. How could it be contingent on practice and verification? That's the main zazen instruction. And then later in the text, he says, and you know, you should sit in a quiet room and arrange your legs like this and your hands like this and posture like this and breathe like this and think like this. But um, those are kind of like how to um, you could say maintain the uh, the view that's been pointed out in the first sentence. The way is originally perfect and all pervading. People might not think that that's the main zazen instruction. They might think that's kind of a, a sort of pep talk intro to the real zazen instruction. At Bukokuji, where practiced in Japan, um, there was um, lots of calligraphy, um, poetic calligraphy carved into large boards hung around the temple halls. Calligraphy by the abbot's root teacher, Daiun Sogaku Harada Roshi. They, they actually called him even more honorifically. Rodaishi, I never heard that one elsewhere. Roshi means like kind of old, old teacher, venerable teacher, and Dai is great, so like old, great teacher. Rodaishi Sama. And uh, that was the teacher of Philip Kaplow Roshi and Robert Aiken Roshi, Yasutani Roshi. And he had this calligraphy that was um, hung over the Zendo door. That was this first sentence of the Fukanza Zengi. Said, the way is originally perfect and all pervading. Do hon ensu. And I thought, and it was huge, like a you know five feet 
wide and three feet tall with giant characters. This is four characters, Chinese. And uh, that was inspiring to me because I thought this is the Zazen instruction as you enter the Zendo, right? In case you forget why you're going into this room, this big sign right over the doorway. Do Hong In Su. The way is originally perfect and all pervading. And then we go into the Zendo and arrange our posture and so on. And what do we practice? The way is originally perfect and all pervading. In the uh, Tibetan Dzogchen tradition, uh, it's much like this too, they say. There's the view that must be pointed out by the root teacher. And in, in a way that um, hopefully one really um, can taste it a little experientially. And then what's the meditation? It's uh, in Tibetan tradition, they often talk about there's the view, clarifying right view. There's the meditation, there's the conduct, and then there's the fruition. It's like, kind of like when you're laying out the structure, that's the whole, that's all of practice. And uh, so in this particular great perfection, Dzogchen lineage, the view is non-dual awareness. And then the meditation is just maintaining the view. That's the only instruction. I mean, of course, there's instructions about the posture and all too, but maintain that view. And then the conduct is, is um, the activity you do outside of meditation while maintaining that view. And then the fruition is just when you're maintaining that view 24-7. So it's kind of simple, <laughs> but not that easy when we're like, you know, raking the leaves or washing the dishes to do that as the way is originally perfect and all pervading. And this activity is part of the way since it's all pervading. So uh, I appreciate that these two sides of like really clarifying the view, which might not naturally happen by just plumping a body on a cushion and then plumping a body on a cushion and, and sitting in that view, which of course all that sounds easier than when we actually try to put it into effect. But everything's covered there. So, so Dogen Zenji says in uh, his Gakudo Yojinshu, that there's two ways to directly hit the mark in Zen practice, these are um, San Shimonpo Shikan Taza. And San Shimonpo means uh, visiting the teacher and asking about Dharma, inquiring into the view, one might say, clarifying the practice, basically. And uh, you could say that's what we're doing with these ancestors this week, we're visiting them and inquiring into the Dharma. And you can also do this with living people, which uh, 
one might think that we could we could clear up all our doubts and um you know maybe like um you know a few meetings at the most <laughs> but uh that's kind of what i thought when i started practicing <laughs> but then uh and maybe maybe the doubts that my little list of doubts i did go through them but then more came up uh, for me that's is my experience so i never ran out of of points to clarify about the practice with my teacher. I feel very blessed to have had 30 years with Tenshin Roshi, and I still have, um, just in this last year, I've had a long conversation about some, some Dharma points and really trying to clarify some things. How kind of him to offer this year after year. San Shimonpo visiting the teacher to ask about Dharma and Shikantaza just wholeheartedly sitting. And then maybe some questions come up about that. And we go back and ask and then we have to go back and sit and then we have to back and forth. And uh, Dogen says, if you neglect either of these, you can't hit the mark. My first session ever was Rohatsu Sashin with Tenshin Roshi, 1990. And when I, yesterday on some break, I, I started getting all nostalgic about Rohatsu Sashin. As I mentioned earlier, I, I love the fact of, that there's a Sashin that happens the same time every year. So, so just like somebody can say, where were you on like, you know, New Year's Eve on this year? And, and often we can, it's a, it's a special day of the year. So or on your birthday or something, right? We can kind of remember, trace back. And like, if we think carefully and Rohatsu Sashin feels like that to me, there are lots of other Sashins that maybe stand out less, but um, um, I started kind of like getting distracted from the present by kind of running through these Rohatsu Sashins and appreciating more and more as I did Tears came to my eyes because I thought, how fortunate to be able to sit Rohatsu Sashin. Actually, every year, when I started thinking of these years, I never missed the Rohatsu Sashin for 30 years. 30, it's been 31 years, except one year in the middle. And that was the one I told you about yesterday in Bodhgaya, under the Bodhi tree, where um, I, uh, I didn't sit a whole Sashin, I, I sat that night under the tree, but I didn't, all the others I think were seven day sessions at many different places with different teachers. I think all of them were in Zen temples, except for last year, because the first time I did the whole seven day Rohatsu by myself, because I was out, I was snowed in the mountains of Crestone. It was time for Rohatsu. That Rohatsu Sashin, one that stands out a lot for me is just this one year in Japan, because um, it was a long time ago, but that had a big impact on me that year. I think all the Tassahara, Green Gulch, and Noah Bode, Rohatsus all kind of blend into, into each other because there's so many. 
in Japan. I, I kind of assume it's maybe the case in other temples, but this temple on Rohatsu, they really treated like different from all the other sashimis. There were there was a week long sashimi most months, the first week of most months. That all always had the same schedule, but Rohatsu had a different schedule. Usually the um the standard sashimi was started at four and ended at nine, but Rohatsu, they would add like an hour at the beginning and an hour at the end. Just to celebrate Buddha. <laughs> so Zazen would start at 3 a.m. And, and end at 10 p.m. And the other little, we also would cut down service. There was still the chanting, but it was shorter in Rohatsu. And uh, a lot of people would go back for um, night sitting, yaza, after the daily schedule would end. And, and here, I think for the, I, I've done quite some sessions now here in Austin. And uh, this is the first one where there's been other people in night sitting these days. And um, it's nice to sit together in the dark silence kind of informally come and go as you wish tonight's the last night everyone's welcome to join i totally do understand it you know it's different when you when you live somewhere else and have to drive home compared to a residential temple and uh and i think but that's crazy at the end of the night this is like the most pain possible wouldn't that be like clinically insane to go back to the zendo I don't know that clinically, but kind of like, like a fool, like an idiot. You have to be really stupid to do stuff like that. Nineteenth <laughs> ancestor was Venerable Kumarata. Once the Venerable Gayashita said to him, long ago the world honored one predicted 1,000 years after my death, a great being will appear in Tokara who will inherit and promote the profound teaching. You have now met with this good fortune by encountering me. Hearing this, Kumarata awakened to the knowing of former lives. That's the root case today. Mm, not that juicy. He aroused the knowing of former lives. It didn't say he had great satori, but this this was the Kazan at least pulled out as the central essential story of Kumarata, the nineteenth ancestor. And here's the circumstances of his life. He was from Tokara, it's like um, some area north of India maybe like in Mongolia or something. And his family was Brahmin. Long ago when he was a celestial being, a deva in the Pari, Paranirmita Vashvartin celestial realm, in parentheses, Kazan's parentheses, the sixth celestial realm or heaven realm in the realm of desire, so 
this is like um this one gets really like buddhist cosmology kind of like different realms right there's these six realms including hell realms and heaven realms heaven is these deva realms they're all part of some permanent unlike a christian heaven that's kind of permanent realm these heavens are just they're very very nice people like to be born there but they're um the buddha said don't get caught up in the in these heavens because they're just impermanent like everything else what we really want to realize is the unchanging buddha realm so um long ago this Zen ancestor was a deva, a celestial being in this sixth heaven realm, in the realm of desire. So there's these three realms, the realm of desire, which includes like, I think all the other five realms would be in the Kama Loka, the realm of desire. Humans live in this realm, it's like desire is like a big thing for us. And some of the Deva realms also are still like the lower Deva realms are still in this desire realm. And then there's higher heaven realms that are called form realm, the Rupa, Loka, Rupa Datu, I guess it's called the Kama Datu, the Rupa Datu and the, and the Arupya Datu uh, or Loka. And uh, so the form realms are where there's, there's no longer like craving there's just um, like color and sound, like form. Yeah? And then the formless realms, there's not even color and sound, but there's beings that live there very, they're like barely beings, like light kind of beings. This is like, I think some of this is pre-Buddhist, just ancient, ancient Indian world system view. And the Buddha, Shakyamuni went along with it and maybe shifted its sound, I'm not quite sure. But it's it's definitely getting into this mul the multiple lifetime thing in the story, right? This Zen ancestor, Kumarata Daiyosho, a long time ago, he was a deva in this sixth deva realm in the realm of desire. And um, because it was still a desire realm heaven, he saw a bodhisattva's necklace of precious stones because the bodhisattvas kind of like come visit these heaven realms to you know try to liberate the devas and one of the bodhisattvas had some kind of jewel necklace and um the one who was kumarata was like "Ooh, nice necklace <laughs> and he suddenly felt attachment this necklace he fell from that realm and was born in the celestial realm of the Triadinsha heaven, the heaven of the 33 Davis, the second of the celestial realms. Sounds almost like, like Monopoly or something, right? There's all these levels and you kind of go up and down depending on your karma, lifetime to lifetime. And uh, according to, to um, attachment and non-attachment and so on. And, uh, in that in that lower god realm deva realm he um in in this next lifetime he heard indra kaushika indra's kind of family name indra's like the lord of the gods and his 
family name Kaushika means owl. So you hear the owl Indra preaching the Prajnaparamita Sutra. And thanks to realizing its superiority, he next ascended to the celestial realm of the Brahma Devas in the realm of form. He moved out of the desire realm by hearing that all dharmas are marked by emptiness. And remember, this is this ascending and descending thing in the in the usual story is like it's a there's a lifespan at the end of that. They don't just pop up there in the middle of their lifespan. At the end of the lifespan, which ends according to the to the karmic conditions, then um, the momentum from that life is the condition for the next life in some other realm. All this, you know, beginningless, endless, dependent arising. And uh, being uh, quite bright, the being in that realm was skillful in teaching the essentials of Dharma and the celestial beings honored him by making him their teacher. Because the time had arrived according to the conditions for succeeding to the rank of a Zen ancestor, he finally descended from that celestial realm and was born in Tokara, like Mongolia or something, in the human realm. They say that the Deva realms are, you know, kind of like higher than the human realms, but it's best to be born in the human realms because it's more um, sashims <laughs> <laughs> happening in the human realm. And, uh, and the Dharma is easier to access. We heard that the Prajnaparamita sutras were being taught in the Deva realms too. So now he's born in Tokara, and the 18th ancestor, that's um, Gayashita, who liked to listen to bells and wind, you heard about yesterday. He was teaching and he arrived in Tokara, seeing a strange atmosphere around a certain Bharaman house, he started to enter it. And Kumarata, of course, it was his house. And uh, he appeared and asked this person walking through the door with his assembly of monks with him. He said, um, what kind of followers are these that, like following you around? And he uh, said, Gayashita said, these are followers of the Buddha. And when Kumarata heard the name Buddha, he just immediately shut the door in awe. Oh my God, Buddha. I, something about that name, like just freaked me out. And I just had to shut the door. It was too much to even hear the name. And then he thought, wait a second. Because he paused a little. Well, he was standing inside in awe. And then after a little bit outside, <laughs> Dayashata knocked on the door again. And Kumarata, who was still freaked out by hearing the name Buddha, said, there's no one in the house. <laughs> and uh, and Gayashata said, who is it that says no one? And when Kumarata heard this, he realized this must be an unusual person. <laughs> and, um, oh, maybe there's something to learn here. He's like, 
found himself caught in the Zen dialogue. So he opened the door quickly and greeted him. And immediately, um, Gayashata said, long ago, the world honored one predicted that a thousand years after his passing, this great being would appear as in the main case. And that's, and that's you who will inherit the profound teaching. And uh, Kumarata awakened to this knowing of former lives. It doesn't say whether he remembered all those Deva realm lives and remembered hearing the Paramita, but whoever is telling the story, somebody maybe remembered something about these different lifetimes. So uh, maybe it's appropriate to just speak a little bit about this rebirth issue. I think I've maybe spoken about it here before, but um, and maybe people don't aren't so interested because um, it seems like it's this old Indian thing. And Zen people almost never talk about this, but in this record, a lot of these Indian ancestor stories involve these multiple lifetimes. And um, it's easy to misunderstand, I think, this issue of this teaching of rebirth. And by at least understanding the teaching of it, I think it helps to understand the whole dharma as a system. So, and because it's not talked about so much, I think it's nice to talk about it. The reason I say it's easily misunderstood is because um, people often ask this too. I've heard that various people ask this. This is teaching of anatman, right? There's no individual, personal, independent self. So what's this, these particular beings are, are reborn. What's being reborn if there's no continuous, unchanging personal identity? Great question, don't you think? Maybe there were other Indian traditions that did teach there is an essential personal individual identity, like a, like a personal soul or something that is reborn. It can easily be heard that way, but that would contradict the, the Buddha's teaching. So um, rebirth was popular teaching in India before the Buddha. But um, sometimes people say that, that uh, what Buddha just, you know, it was, the, it was the, everybody in India believed in rebirth. So the Buddha, it would have been, he would have like lost his followers if he said, no, we don't go for the rebirth thing. So it was like, we got to integrate that teaching. But actually, uh, I came across a teaching not so long ago that there were all these, you know, different Indian philosophical and yogic traditions at Buddha's time. 500 BC in India. And um, some of them believed in some kind of version of rebirth and some didn't. And what I recently heard was that um, the majority of them didn't actually. It wasn't like you had to, you had to believe that in India. It was just some of them had that. So um, I thought that was a nice point because then it's like the Buddha didn't have to adopt that view. But um, the Buddha maybe felt like actually that is the way it is the way conventional appearances work it's not the ultimate truth nobody would say rebirth is ultimate reality it's the view of conventional appearances of dependent arising and uh 
and we heard that story earlier, right? That the Buddha's night of his enlightenment, according to his account in the old sutras, he had this vision of his past lives way, way, way back, and then had this vision of everybody's um, series of lives according to karma. Uh, so it's, it's central to his night under the Bodhi tree. But what do you mean his lives if there's no continuous him? So uh, let's just look at this, this other, um, this sutra, I think it's, it's kind of nice around this point in the, the Pali suttas and the foundational vehicle, the middle-length discourses, Sutra 38, disciple of Buddha named Sati said to the Buddha, as I understand the Dharma taught by the blessed one, you, it is this same consciousness that runs and wanders through the round of rebirths not another, this one consciousness. Remember, consciousness here is Vijnana, the fifth aggregate, divided knowing, which um, arises dependent on conditions and ceases dependent on conditions moment by moment, radically impermanent, and um, therefore ultimately unsatisfying. Um, skanda called consciousness. So he's talking about that consciousness. We're not talking about unborn awareness here. And consciousness is, we could say, individual. Every person has their own um, stream of consciousness. We might say stream because consciousness only lasts one moment. It's not a continuous thread. If it were a continuous same as a, I would say, as an individual separate self, but the Buddha says there isn't, but the Buddha says there is consciousness, but it's, it's just an arising in this moment dependent on the objects of consciousness. Consciousness arises, and then the, you could say the objects change, and other factors change, and that consciousness ceases, and the ceasing of that consciousness is a condition for the arising of a new consciousness, moment to moment. So there's no, there's no continuity, really. There's no permanence. You could say there's a, con a, um, a continuity of, of similar, similar moments of consciousness for each person. There, right? The new moment of consciousness doesn't suddenly arise dependent on a different body, for example. That would get really confusing. <laughs> Suddenly, like in the next moment, Drew's consciousness is dependent on Coco's body, and Coco's consciousness is dependent on Drew's body. Whoa, it's getting get messy. <laughs> so, this is law, this kind of regularity. Let's call it regularity that, like, the next moment of consciousness depends on a very similar body as the one before. The body only lasts one moment, too, but the body has a kind of stream or continuum of body, continuum of feelings, continuum of perceptions, of karmic formations, and continuum of consciousness. In our, in, our, in our lifetime, right now, this is the Buddhist description of consciousness, which is why there is consciousness and a, and a feeling of continuity, but there's no entity called the owner of the consciousness that's a permanent 
independent personal um, experiencer. There's just um, consciousness, which is experiencing things moment to moment. And follow. Just it, that's why there's no self needed in our in our daily life. So same principle, uh, death, according to the Buddhas, is there's no entity that um, is reborn, but there's this stream of um, cause and effect of consciousness, conscious moments arising depending on previous conscious moments. And that's where it does get kind of interesting because when the body, um, that's the consciousness is dependent on this body, all right? And at the moment of death, the body and the, and the consciousness at the, there's a moment of body and a moment of consciousness at the moment of death. And those two are no, they lose their dependent relationship. But what's that mean? But isn't that actually kind of how it is? Well, how normal, normally we would think of death is there's a mind and a body and they, they lose their relationship at the moment of death. You know? The mind no longer is in relationship to the body from then on. We all know that. We all know that. I said, you don't know that. You don't know that? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's true. We don't know that, but um, but that, that would also be kind of scary if the consciousness continued to depend on this rotting body under the ground <laughs> or in the, in, the, in the cremation pyre. The consciousness would be like, this is, get me out of the fire. <laughs> so I think we have some strong sense anyway that the consciousness um, is no longer dependent on the body, but um, but you're right, actually, that we don't know that. So so there are various stories kind of based on not knowing exactly about this. For example, like the consciousness may be still dependent on body in some kind of relationship after clinical death, and that is actually the kind of usual Buddhist story more like tibetan buddhism they're really into this like transitional moment of death they, re they really want to like look carefully at this so um there they would say their the consciousness is kind of hanging around the corpse for a little while after death which is why they have traditions that don't like move the corpse if you can try to um let it let it rest there for like even a few days if possible which is hard in modern times to do this but like at zen center we're sometimes able to do this the founder of this temple zen kg zen k blanche hartman her, her body could no longer remain in dependence on her consciousness at one point and uh we call that death she was living at San Francisco Zen Center. And so as an honor teacher there, um, the Zen Center was able to leave her body in the Buddha Hall. I think for, was it three days? Were you around for this, Marka? She died. Oh, well, she, she was brought to the Buddha Hall because I was there um, for one day of it. I happened to be giving a talk at the Zen Center and, and uh, there was a corpse in the Buddha hall, like open, you could see her. You have to use a lot of ice to 
to keep it fresh and people could come and pay respects, which is very moving, very uh, moving. Um, others too, um, Michael Sawyer died at Green Dragon Temple while I was living there. And also we kept his body for a while in his house. Zen centers, you can do this kind of thing. Even Santa Cruz Zen Center that somebody who was living there before I got there, died there and they were able to keep the body for several days in the temple and sit with Catherine Thanos, the abbess of Santa Cruz Zen Center, who was my predecessor there. I think we kept her body for three days there and sat and it was in the middle of Sashin she died and we knew it was coming. And uh, her house was a little bit down the road from the Zen center, but she died in, in the middle of, so she, she wasn't in the Sashin. She was already in a coma before this, but she died during the Sashin. So then we, we kind of moved our Sashin. We, we kind of had a kind of pilgrimage Sashin. I think twice a day we would process as a silent assembly to her house, which is close by, and sit sashin with her body. It was very powerful. Yeah. Yes. Ah. Uh, ah. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have to get like special permission? Yeah, we had a silent Yeah. We did everything. Ourselves. We had the fire yeah. Mm -hmm. So we had dry ice. Yeah. This is something to consider, right? And uh, for for us and our loved ones, and, and uh, I think if it's if it's too complicated, I think we we don't want to get um, at these times we don't want to get too worked up and um, and um, disturbed by lots of details. So like. I think if, if, if they're like, no, we, we have to take the body now, then, then I think it's good to like go along with the conditions too. And because if there's a consciousness around there, that's the, the teaching is with the reason we sit around there is to like help it on its way. So, so the, a good practice around dying people and people after they've died, for anyone who practices in a hospice or something like this, you want to keep you want to really keep a good nice practice of calm and and ease around dying yes I'm just thinking of the instances of people that are in surgery or they're sick in the hospital and they're conscious and they report that they're they leave their body for some period yes yeah surgery and yep. they can report a lot of facts that they yep. don't normally know so it, it seems That's like right. It can be a stretching. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Without breaking the link somehow. Nice way to put it. Yeah. Stretching without breaking the link. And as you say, there's many, many stories like this that have been collected. The N NDE, right? The near-death experiences. I forget the name of there's one author, a scientist who his whole life's work was just collecting stories from around the world about near-death experiences and they had very similar in all across a bunch of different cultures which is just um we don't know exactly what's going on there but it, it looks like there's a, a lot of evidence for um 
after what we would call clinical death, there is still some conscious um, activity. Maybe this is what you're bringing up, but we don't know. I, I, yeah, I'm just, uh, I was just trying to point out that. Um, yeah. None of us haven't had that experience. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that. yeah, we don't know. Yes. So the uh, consciousness versus the storehouse of consciousness. Mm -hmm. Can you comment on that? Because the way I understand the consciousness is arising in where in the storehouse is all those causes and conditions, which would make sense in a rebirth. Yeah. That all of those causes and conditions were there, whereas the yes. consciousness independent of that. Yes. Yes. So um the early Buddhist story about um, rebirth is that uh, is that consciousness is the fifth aggregate. Consciousness is a is a major part here. But then there's this thing about karma across lifetimes, and Dogen even has like two different essays on like kar karma, karmic um, fruition across lifetimes karma in the three times and um, deep faith and cause and effect are two essays by Zen teacher Dogen about what we're talking about here. So he was concerned with this issue. And um, so, so this, it's a little hard to understand this early story that there's this consciousness dependent on the body at the moment of death, that, that dependent link, um, the, you could say the moment of death or at some moment, maybe three days after death at some point the body and the consciousness no longer can remain in dependence and then and and then the stream of consciousness remember it's not a it's not an entity and it's not a continuous thread it's an arising and ceasing um series of cause and effect that series of cause and effects immaterial consciousness then needs to be dependent on another body and some would say it, it can't even have one moment where it's not dependent on at least some subtle body. And that's where these Bardo teachings come in. It's like a subtle non-material body in order to maintain this dependent relationship. And then at some point, um, we get what we would call like a material body. And so, and then the, somehow the karma is kind of like carried along sort of wrapped around these conscious moments or something but that story gets harder to understand how the karma could which is again a stream of moments how that how that's linked with the consciousness so then the yogacara tradition came up with this story uh, to help us and i think it's a really it's a much more accessible story storehouse consciousness which again is not an entity or a um an unchanging thing or like a soul or some permanent thing. Again, it is defined as just moment to moment, cause and effect, cause and effects kind of container. Um, it is just the causes and effects of a, of a certain sentient being's life. We might even say what a sentient being is, most basically is a storehouse consciousness. And then that gives rise to what we call like a body and feelings and so on. And it's an, and they're individual. Each sentient being has their own storehouse consciousness, and the storehouse consciousness are independent with each other because they're not some entity. They're they're just a, they're just cause and effect. So one could define the the storehouse consciousness as like 
the momentary um, you know, summation of all the effects leading up to this moment for this person, something like that. So it's, it's already different than it was a moment ago. Each of our storehouse concepts has a few more bits of info in it now, right? In the last sentence. <laughs> and so they're like, they're evolving, they're changing, and they're, but they're nothing more than the totality of all experiences we've ever had, which also accounts for memory and even experiences in previous lifetimes of the storehouse consciousness. So um, in this yoga chara later model, then we can actually say, I think, fairly, maybe a dangerous if we don't quite fully understand this, but consciousness. But it's not an entity that's reborn. It's not a self that's reborn. It's just a series of cause and effect. But the nice thing about that is it's the storehouse of all karmic effects, as well as consciousness. It's kind of the early model that's trying to somehow say the karmic effects come along with each conscious moment. This is saying, we're just calling it one, one field called storehouse consciousness. That is, a, it's a dualistic consciousness. It's an impermanent moment to moment consciousness, but um, it carries, its, its um, job is to carry the effects of all past actions and all the experiences that happen to us. Yes. So karma is individual, but also collective, isn't it? I mean, the causes and conditions that drive any of us to the state of being also interact with, with all the other storehouses. Yeah, yeah. So in some ways, I think it's always troubled me about the individuation of these various categories is the way things seem to play out is, is dependent on rising extremely complex. Yeah. Yeah. We are all here together, just as one example. Yeah, all our storehouse consciousnesses are all completely um, intertwined or interdependent right now. That would be the story. And just as you were saying about the ancestors, you know, if you took one ancestor out, mm -hmm. Yeah. That, you know, in a way that we can't predict or can't know. Yeah. But yeah. That's true. So. Yeah. And that there are, and that everything that happens in, in all these various stories is not just the result of the karma of this one storehouse consciousness. That's important to realize too. That would be too deterministic, too individually, um, linearly deterministic. Um, so yes, this collective karma, we could say, like climate change or something that wasn't caused by one um, storehouse consciousness, it was caused by like many, many, over many, many um, generations of storehouses. And, um, and yet, so yeah, it's, there's all this interdependence and yet the Buddhist teaching is, is um, trying to also account for um, individuality, interdependent individuality. Um, that is the teaching, Buddhist teaching of karma from the earliest times is that, um, that, that, that this particular body and mind collection of stuff 
the actions that it does come back to a particular body and mind collection. Um, otherwise, yeah, otherwise it wouldn't be the Buddhist teaching of karmic cause and effect. <laughs> but, you know, it's complicated because the action, our actions, of course, affect other people too. But the teaching, originally the teaching of karma is really emphasizing how they affect us. And of course, we know that in this lifetime, if we really hurt somebody in this lifetime, it's going to be painful for us, usually. And that's the part that's being most emphasized. Yes. Could you comment on like the Tibetan lamas who kind of like direct, I don't know if that's the right word, but kind of reincarnate and like why, um, yeah, why kind of goes to one new body instead of say like consciousness branching off and going, you know, a few karmic infants. Yeah, yeah. Well, there are stories, um, I'm thinking Tibetan stories. I'm not sure if I can think of any in Zen, but um, where um, one, here, let's, we can use the image of the storehouse consciousness, which is individual. It's, um, and that, the effects of that storehouse, that series, constantly changing series, could, um, um, you know, kind of incarnate or you know, join with with several different bodies. There are stories like that in, in Tibet. Like there's the um, uh, usually the stories are, are connected with really great, amazing bodhisattvas that have the um, kind of like powerful intentions enough to do this kind of thing. But usually the way it's said is um, some of these really great teachers. They have a they have a body, speech, and mind incarnation. So there's like three people that 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 would have been that teacher. And this the way that they maybe they act. This person is is particularly the karmic results of their bodily actions. This one is the kind of karmic results of their speech. So they're like maybe really eloquent in teaching the dharma. And this one is their like wisdom mind. So they do they they have that story. But usually, I think the, the earlier, the usual story is it's a little bit more one-to-one. -one. But that is an example of it doesn't have to be. And, and also regarding like, you know, yeah, right, the Tibetan Buddhists are more into it. But as you hear, this is in our Zen lineage, there's, and especially in this book, there's quite a lot about these weavings of rebirths. And, and um, there's even another story here where it's like, um, I'm too old, like one meets their teacher and the, but uh, and the teacher said, you're old to start your training with me. And that, that person like uh, kind of like leaves and kind of comes back in, in another body and starts training with that teacher. <laughs> so Zen, Soto Zen has this too. But uh, the other piece of the Tibetan story is like the great, um, you know, deeply practiced people who are really cultivating their intentions and they're really working with a lot of teachings around this death process. So they're maybe like setting their intentions really strongly. Like when I go into this bardo, I have these, this, this very strong intention. This is what I'm going to do in between lives for the next time to benefit beings. So not only are they like fueled by this great compassion, which has a lot of powerful energy, and by their wisdom, which has a lot of powerful energy. But um, they're training the condition, they're basically just conditioning the stream of conditions 
to like function in particular ways. So it's not really that far-fetched. I think according to our story that most rebirths are driven by the karma from the previous life. And most people don't think about this stuff at all. So wherever they left off, <laughs> the next time will be like those effects. But if somebody's like, I'm going to, with all of my, um, you know, intention, uh, intend to um, bring this conditioning, to kind of steer this conditioning in this particular way, to be born in a particular this particular place, because the conditions will be really good for my next practice life. That's usually the Tibetan story. I could imagine that this, you know, if, if this rebirth story is true, which we don't know, but if, if it worked like this, that with really deep intention, one could direct the, uh, the effects. Yeah, don't you think? Yes. Yeah, so um, I guess uh, I would posit that for two things to be, to have distinct identity, Mm-hmm. But there has to be some distinguishing characteristic between, right? So, like, yes. when I think about like physics, I think about electrons, and like it's so it's on such a small scale. There's nothing really different between them except their position. Yeah, their yeah, speed, right? yeah. There is a difference. Yes. Right. The position of speed. Yes. Right. But like other than that, you mm-hmm. know, there's not they have the same build and everything. Right? Yes. So it's like if you were to pause time, like swap out, you know, this electron over here for this electron over here, and like, you know, now this one has the new new position has the same speed, and this one has the new position. You wouldn't have actually changed that, mm-hmm. right? Well, for all intents and purposes, you could say the function would be the same, but you did make a change. But the way it would function would be identical, you could say. And if we hadn't made the change, there would be no perceivable difference. Yes. Right. Yes. So how does this fit with the with the rebirth story? So uh, I guess to, to me, when I think of like consciousness, um, I'm thinking of like something like if I'm leaving my body and leaving the memories like included mm-hmm. in my mind or mm-hmm. brain and um, all that, uh, then what I'm left with seems to be something that's uh, without any distinguishing characteristics versus yours or you know another mm-hmm. consciousness. Uh-huh. Well, like as you say, if, if the memory is stored in the brain, which is a kind of modern uh, Western scientific um, theory. Mm-hmm. And there's some, you know, there's some correlation between parts of the brain and memories because we can take parts out and things like that. But, um, but, this, but this Dharma story would be that really where the, um, the main place the memory is stored is the storehouse consciousness. Okay. It's not a material brain. So there is, there is a distinguishing characteristic to consciousness versus another consciousness. If we're talking about storehouse consciousness, okay. yeah, they're completely different, totally different. 
they're, that's why we're all different personalities is they're based on the, our, our storehouses of all our past experiences and you know in this life and other lives and other things like the food we ate whatever right? like um all the conditions that have created this life um so the storehouse consciousnesses are yeah very much distinguishable but i'll put in parentheses and hopefully we come back to this their essence the nature of each storehouse consciousness is the true self is just identical, indistinguishable, non-dual awareness. That's the true nature of every storehouse consciousness. That's indistinguishable. And that's the ultimate truth, the indistinguishable one. And the conventional truth is myriad different, dependently arisen, um, unique storehouse consciousnesses. And in the next lifetime, the storehouse consciousness um, Usually, the way it works is it seems like the memory aspect of the storehouse consciousness gets goes so gets received so far into the, like the inner core of the storehouse or something that nobody remembers their past. But occasionally, like Shakyamuni Buddha's story, he accessed you could say the the um, you know that that like little piece of the hard drive or whatever that was like he could remember like thousands of past lives and other people too. You know, even in modern times. There's stories anyway. People, I remember, I have a distinct memory of this thing that didn't happen in this life. And um, occasionally they can find something. So maybe bits and pieces. So, so you could say, but the body will be different. Usually there's no, no memory, but sometimes some, maybe. And like that. So is it, I mean, would it be accurate in, in, in for you to, to look at like, like the body is sort of a wrapper around storehouse consciousness and then storehouse consciousness is kind of like a wrapper around true self yeah you, you could say it like that but of course these wrappers are not like physical wrappers but yeah you could say it's like three layers like that mm -hmm. um and really from this yoga chara point of view the body wrapper is is not actually like material stuff the body is a, like a, um, a manifestation of the storehouse of mind there's no um, what we call solid matter it's just nothing but experience it's like experience only so but you could say that what appears is the body and the world is also not made of physical matter according to this tradition uh, but it appears um, as such and you know across and different people that's part of the collective karma is like this planet is the collective karmic result of a bunch of storehouses even, even in the early teachings the abhidharma kosha on the chapter on karma um, vasubandhu says um, uh, the world and then he describes the world as like, you know, kind of like the world as we perceive it. That world is created by the karma of living beings. You mean like living beings created like rock mountains and stuff? I think that's what he's saying. Yeah, this is even before Yogacara. So these are weird stories for, you know, 
scientific materialist modern America. <laughs> so, I need Tokyo. Oh, yes, Corinne. There's a couple of things that came to mind. People who have visitations of the death of a somebody who had been in their life who have visitations from them after their death. Um, can you have anything to say about what that might be? Mm. Well, um, from this conversation so far, um, this, uh, this, this potential, this, these are all stories we're telling, right? But like, they maybe help to understand other aspects of Dharma. But remember, they're just stories, like Drew says. We, well, I know I I know two people who have had those visitations. One, my niece, and one of Lama Tarchin's students who had a visitation from him. Yeah. So, so one story would be like this: how the consciousness um, of the um, you know previous life um, is still hanging around the body, and that conscious stream of consciousness could. Um, maybe relate to beings that it was had a strong connection with in that life. I think it's even said in some, maybe these are more Tibetan teachings, that the um, this bardo being in between the in between the two lifetimes, which is up to 49 days. So we still in Zen we do this 49 day ceremony, which is like the maximum time that the conscious stream um, could be between lives before it, before it depends on a new body. That the uh, one teaching is that the uh, in this period that could be up to forty nine days, that the kind of the first half, the first part of that period, um, the uh, the bardo being in between being immaterial being is like more um, more like the previous lifetime, and there's even stories that. Sometimes they don't even know that they died. Just people start stop talking to them. <laughs> like, something's different here, right? But they're like more like the um, the previous lifetime. And then the second half, near the other half, they start it starts transforming. They're more like the the next life that they're going to be. If they're going to be born as a chicken or something. They start <laughs> their, their their toes start getting longer. I don't know. But um, but in that case, it would be like they're. Uh, their um, previous, you could say that the bardo being it's still kind of conditioned to feel like it did in the previous lifetime. That could be like the visitation, and then the really great um, bodhisattva. Then it might be that that they're actually like outside of the samsaric realm. It could be that they're like. Um, like in in like like a pure land, for example, where they could then relate to beings from that if it, that they had a strong karmic connection with, like that. But who knows, right? These are these are stories. But good questions to contemplate, I think, and just be open to how weird these stories are. <laughs> in our modern scientific view, you know. I think we're less and less open to this kind of stuff. So I like being open to it. It opens my mind to all kinds of possibilities. 
So going back to this to this sutra, the middle length discourses, 38, um, Sati says to the Buddha, as I understand the Dharma that you teach, it's the same consciousness, some, some you know, entity of consciousness that runs and wanders through the round of rebirths, not another. And the Buddha says, what is that consciousness you're talking about, Sati? And he says, it's that which speaks and feels and experiences here and there, the result of good and bad karma, good and bad actions. So it's the, you could maybe sum it up by he's, he's saying, I think it's the experiencer. And um, I think consciousness is the experiencer. And I would say that consciousness is more like experiencing in a moment to moment way. And the true self is unchanging um, nature of experiencing. But the experiencer, anything that feels or is called an experiencer would be a separate self, like an entity called the experiencer. It's something. And we feel like I am the experiencer, that sense of I am the experiencer is the illusory view of the separate self. And so, um, so the Buddha says to Sati, misguided man to whom have you ever known me to teach the dharma in that way misguided man have i not stated in many ways consciousness to be dependently arisen since without a condition there is no origination of consciousness so he's really emphasizing it's not some entity called the experiencer consciousness is just dependently arising moment to moment i think is what he's saying then Buddha goes on, consciousness arises dependent on the, on the sense faculty and the sense object. Consciousness arises dependent on karmic formations and so on. So um, the Buddha is refuting this idea of a, of a consciousness that's an agent of action, which would be like a self or an experiencer of events, which would be like an, a self or an entity that retains its personal identity through a succession of different incarnations. That's Bhikkhu Bodhi's footnote on this section of the sutra. He says, um, Buddha is refuting that there's an entity that retains its personal identity through a succession of different incarnations. Maybe it's somewhat related to your question about maintain, retaining a kind of identity. So, uh, which means that some people might feel like they, when they first hear about this rebirth thing, like, I like that because I can live forever. I'll just keep coming back in these different forms and, and I don't have to worry about being obliterated, my very self being obliterated because I'll just keep coming back. But that's actually not really the teaching because there's no memory of the previous ones. So there'll be no, usually, so, and it's going to be a completely different person or some kind of being, sentient being, uh, maybe very different from this one. Um, so it, it shouldn't really give us a sense of comfort. <laughs> I think the Buddha is teaching a rebirth, in fact, in his time was to give us a sense of strong discomfort. Like we don't want to actually keep doing this thing because um, like, we don't want to be a horseshoe crab <laughs> and uh, get like, you know, eaten by a shark or something. And, uh, and just have to keep doing this 
suffering business. We want to like end this cycle. So, um, and another point about this that I just a, a week ago or so, I was looking at this book because um, there's this uh, great Buddhist scholar named Paul Williams. Does anyone know Paul Williams? He has some, I think, really great books on Indian Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism. Um, I've, I really like uh, use his very clear teachings. He's trying to bring the ancient teachings into like a way of understanding them. I think he's brilliant. His, his whole life as a, as a Buddhist academic professor at Oxford, I think, or something. Um, he wrote this book a few years ago. He converted to Catholicism. Actually, like 30 years as like a, a Buddhist professor. And he was really kind of, really knew the philosophy. I don't know if he practiced meditation so much. Um, but, and all his colleagues were like, what? <laughs> You're so clear about this theology. There's a lot of weird, has a lot of weird points that seem like they're not as logical and, 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 and intuitive as the, as this Buddhist teachings, what's going on there. And so he wrote this book about it, which I thought, I want to hear, I want to hear why, how he got convinced by Catholicism. I'm open to that. And um, one of the things he says in, in the book that I found interesting was as a whole chapter, I think about this rebirth story. And he's like, of course, the Christian stories after death is this heaven. And some theologians, I think, believe in hell. Maybe some don't, I think, or you have spent some time in purgatory, but most generally okay people. I'm not sure about this, but I think he was feeling like he's going to go to heaven <laughs> and that heaven is eternal, eternal bliss. And, um, and then, but the, but the part that really got me was he said, I never felt so comfortable with this rebirth story because, because I'm not going to be there anymore. It's like, it really is the end of me and everything I've known. And I like this life and I want to continue. And rebirth sounds like it's me continuing, but actually there'd be no memory of this at all. There'll be nothing really that's me, just these karmic effects. And he's like, I don't, I never really liked that story, but I like the story <laughs> that I, there'll be this me, my same identity in some sort of ethereal form in heaven. And I can even like hang out with my loved ones there and stuff. And I thought, um, and a lot of people like that view. Maybe why Catholicism is more popular than Buddhism. Yes. Versions of heaven. I read some interview once about an evangelical woman who was sure that heaven was going to be her looking out her kitchen window over <laughs> the sink in the backyard. It's like, exactly. Ah, that's classic. What she had now that she loved. She said, heaven will look like her view out the kitchen window. Uh, over the sink, which she loved. So, um, but when I, when I read that, I really thought, wow, I think that, um, that Paul Williams, my, my feeling was that um, he was really attached to the particular identity in this lifetime. That that's the whole point of the Buddhist project is to like, of course we like this one in this lifetime, but we're really trying to get over that and continue the process 
And um, I don't have to maintain this identity. Like I want Kokyo to go on forever. That's almost like the root delusion of Buddhism. And I thought, Paul. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you're not going to go on, but like really, that's too much. (laughs) (laughs) But but most people without without the, you know, really opening to the teaching, how that of not self being like a really liberating thing to not be me for eternity is actually a liberating thing. Um, then, then uh, they may be like the Christian heaven. Yes. Paul, Paul Williams. Yeah. Exactly. The one gasping on his deathbed. Right. Yeah. 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 Good. Good question. <laughs> the tenure part. Yeah. 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 And he even asked uh, these things like, well, what I want, I love my dog and I want my dog to be there in heaven. But that, but Catholicism has usually the view is that dogs don't go to heaven. And I thought, he's like, I don't think his colleagues are going to be convinced, but the argument sounded weirder and weirder um, to me. Tokyo? Yes. There may be more Catholics than Buddhists, but I think there are more Buddhists who used to be Catholics than there are Catholics who used to be Buddhists. Yeah, 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 yeah. He mentions that in this book. He's like, you know, a lot of my Buddhist colleagues used to be Catholic, but it's very rare to convert. He, you know, he wasn't, he didn't grow up Catholic either. He converted and had to go through all this catechism and baptism and, and he said, that's really rare. Yeah, we have some, some Sangha members that are exploring that. But there's maybe other things besides the view. He was just, you know, a philosopher. So, and he was trying to write this book from a philosophical um, standpoint. And I thought it's an interesting, it was an interesting study of kind of comparing the two religions by a great thinker. I wasn't convinced. <laughs> to convert. Um, so um, also in the soup in the same sutra number 38, uh, the Buddha says when they're talking about the actual does Buddha really get into this actual rebirth process? But this early sutra, he says, um, how does this happen? When there's the union of mother and father, and the mother is in season, like she's fertile. And the Gandharva is present. And Gandharva is um, another name for this bardo, the bardo beings between two lifetimes. Through the union or dependent on these three factors, these three conditions, descent into the embryo takes place. So that was, that's really kind of specific and, and biological in the Buddhist story. Not too many times he talks quite like that. We could say, and maybe our story, we could say the Gandharva is the storehouse consciousness um, between gross bodies. And the Gandharva is like kind of the subtle body of the, of the in-between being. If you want uh, a, a nice kind of like, um, just to kind of warm up to how could this be one um, kind of far out um, sci-fi movie it's called um, Enter the Void. Has anyone seen Enter the Void? 
it's kind of intense and disturbing, but it's kind of like tries to really depict this process through film. I don't know if I would recommend it. <laughs> so, um, so, so now Kate, so that's some, this is all conventional stories about dependent arising. Now here's Kazan's Teisho. You should consider this story carefully. Even if you clarify the way of names and words, like the teachings in the sutras, and clarify the coming and going of birth and death as the true person. If you do not clarify the fact that your own intrinsic nature is empty, bright, marvelous, and vast, luminous and vast, then you do not understand the big mind that the Buddhas express and verify. So now we're like, going in a new direction here. All these stories about conventional dependent arising of rebirths. Now, Kazan, as usual, points to the ultimate. Therefore, Kumarata was amazed to see Bodhisattvas emitting light. I think this maybe means that, that jewel necklace that he got attached to. And he had feelings of attachment when he saw the 32 marks and 80 minor marks on the bodies of Buddhas. The reason is that he still had not gotten rid of the three poisons of greed, hate, and delusion. When we now look at Kumarata's past, he retrogressed and fell from the celestial realm of Triatrimsa, heaven due to craving. However, due to causes in former lives, he ascended to the realm of Brahma Devas when he heard Indra teaching the Dharma. And finally, he was born in Tokara accumulated merits from the past sister and awakened this knowing of former lives. When knowing of former lives is mentioned, Kazan says, it's thought that this refers to knowing the past or future as we ordinarily use the terms. So I think that's how we would usually hear this. He had this memory of these particular past lives. And that was kind of like his awakening to dependent arising, you might say. So this is Kesan's turning this. It's usually re this refers to knowing past and future as we ordinarily use these terms. But what in the world would be the value of that? Kesan says, if you can simply see that your original unchanging self nature is neither holy nor ordinary, neither deluded nor enlightened, and hundreds of thousands of teachings and incalculable numbers of subtle principles all abide in the source of mind. It's taking us back to the source. Therefore, both delusions of ordinary beings and enlightenment of all the Buddhas abide within this square inch of self. That's an unusual term. And, and it's capital S, like, I think it means like, all, all the Dharma abides within this reality, like all reality is contained in this square inch. Not sure why he's saying it that way, but like we could say all the entire um, universe is in a tiny mustard seed. This is like a flower ornament realm. It's not at all the senses and their objects, nor mind and its objects. 
or view of duality. It's not really about that. At this point, what can you call ancient and what can you call present? And who are all the Buddhas and what are sentient beings? From this big perspective, not a single thing obstructs the eye. Not a speck of dust touches the hands. Being simply a mass of empty brightness, it's vast and boundless. That is, the eternal, truly perfected Jitagata is sentient beings who are enlightened from the beginning. It's the non-duality of Buddhas and sentient beings. What is the truly perfected, all-pervading Tathagata? It is all of us. It's even this lectern. Lecterns don't happen to awareness. Lecterns don't really even happen as. Lecterns happen as awareness. And awareness is another name for the uh, eternal, truly perfected Tathagata. Thus, when there is understanding, there is no increase. When there's no understanding, there's no decrease in the reality of awareness. Being awakened to the fact that it has been thus for long eons is what is meant by uh, awakening this knowing of former lives. Could you again? <laughs> being awakened to the fact that it has been thus. Thus, it has been timeless, boundless, empty brightness, beginninglessly, all-pervadingly. Um, everything that appears is nothing but this um, eternal, unchanging brightness. So is he saying like, like past lives are like lecterns here? Yes, past lives are like lecterns and watches and cups of water and us. So the, and it's the, the nice thing is I think he's playing on knowing. It's the, it's the jnana, which sometimes gets translated as the knowledge, gyan, the knowledge of past lives, but um, it also is, is non-dual awareness is another translation of jnana. So this is the knowing of former lives, the knowing that is former lives, the knowing that former lives are nothing other than the knowing of former lives. If I, knowing this, this, this awakening is knowing that former lives are nothing other than the knowing of former lives, knowing that this stick is nothing other than the knowing of the stick. Knowing that knowing only knows knowing. If we know that knowing only knows knowing, this is all we need <laughs> to know. <laughs> there is nothing other than knowing. Call this a sky hook. Or stick, but we call it that. But what is it actually? It's just knowing taking the form of a stick, awareness taking the form of a stick. Can we find can we find a stick in this room other than the knowing of it? There is a knowing of the stick, right? 
and the seeing is a kind of knowing. Or can we find a stick in addition to the seeing of it, in addition to the knowing of it? I don't think we can find one, but we can find the knowing of it. I don't think we can find a past life, but we can find the knowing of it. This is Kazan's saying, this is what knowing of former lives actually um, means, he says. If you do not reach this realm, you will be agitated by feelings about delusion and awakening. Like, I want to get rid of that one, and I want to get that one. You will be moved about by signs of past and future, and in the end, you will not understand that there is a true capital S self, nor will you clarify the fact that the original mind is not mistaken. Therefore, you make the Buddhas take all the trouble of appearing in the world. <laughs> and you make the ancestor Bodhidharma come from the West a long time ago. If you don't just settle the matter now, you got to make the Buddhas come. Bodhidharma, come enlighten me. <laughs> Bodhidharma, okay, if you insist. But it's a lot of trouble for me to, you know, sail around the bottom of India and come to China like this. You can just, if you just realize there's nothing other than knowing right now, you can save me the trouble. The original meaning of the Buddha appearing in the world and the original intention of the ancestor coming from the West was for this matter and nothing else. As the Notice Sutra says, the Buddhas appear in the world for the sake of this one great matter. You should take care to realize that this, this right now is numinous awareness, not dark. So, Maybe, maybe uh, Tracy is the only one here in our, in our study group, which anyone's welcome to join. We have, we're, we've had an ongoing study group of, of Korean um, Zen teacher, Chinul, who lived about the same time of Dogen. And uh, we're just reading through this book. And the book's title is Numinous Awareness is Never Dark. And it's a phrase that Chinul, um, like, oh, Choro is also in, in this group. She's missed a couple of. There is. Right. <laughs> it's our like, Numinous awareness is never dark as Chinul uses this phrase. Numinous means like, um, it's hard to define. Do you remember, Tracy? Well, you know me, I have a problem with that word, but divine, spiritual. Yeah. I, I just think of that as undivided. Yeah. Concept divine or spiritual is the Chinese character. And uh, never dark is maybe a, another translation of that is not obscured as a valid translation. Numinous awareness, uh, you know, non-dual awareness, never obscured by dualistic perceptions. So Chinu likes to use that, but he got it from this teacher, Sung Mi in China, who liked to use that. Numinous, and it's the title of the book, and it's throughout. And Sunni and early Chinese Chan defined the view of reality as, um, let's say, non-dual awareness, 
never obscured. And that's a direct quote uh, from Kazan here. So it, it really is, uh, um, I think, almost definitely um, quoting Sungmi. So I, when I saw that in the Chinese, I thought, cool. Who would have known there's a connection to Sungmi and Chinuo? And uh, Dogen maybe wouldn't, wouldn't quote that so, so freely. It's maybe leave something to grasp onto the spiritual knowing. But Kazan, this is where he talks. You, uh, this is numinous awareness, not obscured or concealed, very bright and unhidden, understanding that it is the original radiant light. Komyo is the meaning of arousing the knowing of former lives. Today I have a few humble words and also would like to try to penetrate this principle a little. Would you, as the great assembly, like to hear them? Case <laughs> answers. In past lives, he cast off one body after another. Right now, he meets the old fella. Remember, old fella, old gal is, this is one of Kazan's names for Buddha, numinous awareness. Oh, anything, to anything to clarify in the principle? So the master, yeah, the um, body after body. So it's kind of referring to he was going through this, not he exactly, but there was this series of karmically driven past lives over and over again. And then um, in this meeting, he realized the knowing of past lives. Maybe that's not really what the original story was going no, to. I was to. like, wow, that's a lot to see in there. That's yeah, really, but that's what, bit. yeah. took out of that. So exactly. That's why he, he kind of pulled out that section of the story and said, we're going to call this the awakening story of that ancestor. He acquired the knowing of former lives. Maybe one, if one saw just in the original version of the story, it'd be like, yeah, he, he kind of saw that he had all those dependent lives that led up to this one, but that's not true awakening. So Kazan beautifully turned, turned the story in an unexpected way. Yeah. It doesn't negate all those, um, those previous lives. It just sees them in a new light. That... Um, they have always been thus, and were they really past, or were were they always um, all happening now? Now is another name for numinous awareness. It's always now, unchanging now, all pervading now. Everything is included in this timeless now, before the big bang now, and uh, and realizing this is who we really are, then it's okay. All the conditions 
that led up to in what we call countless eons leading up to this moment of realizing all of that is just now and um, it's not going anywhere. It's not coming from anywhere and it's not going anywhere. And therefore we can rest at ease.